This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hello and welcome to the program. Uh, this is Alicia Tan sitting in for Richard Serrett, who's under the weather tonight. Resting by a cozy fireplace with a hot cup of tea. And we wish him recovery. We have an amazing lineup for you tonight. And before I tell you about that, let me just introduce myself. Ali Siratan, that's me, from Think Again Productions. In December of 1999, I felt the call of the Holy Spirit to go to Iran and warn my dad of a prophetic war with Israel. And ended up being an amazing trip marked by the supernatural and the hand of God. Many people came to faith in Jesus. And then on the road to Isfahan, my dad, his wife, and me had a close-up UFO sighting. This led to the making of a groundbreaking documentary, UFOs, Angels, and Gods, that we released in 2006. And oh boy, did we receive an anointing from God that showed us what was behind the veil from coming satanic deceptions that can affect the entire world and involve the UFO phenomenon to the relationship between the gods of the ancient world and the fallen angels, the giants of old and the hybrids of our age. Make sure you go to the website thinkagainproductions.com and you can watch the documentary there for free. Always leave a donation if you can. And on our YouTube channel, you can hear about the trip to Iran. It was mind-blowing. My friend, Dr. Chuck Missler, who's passed away now, is there on the documentary opening this whole thing up for us. Now, let's turn to our guests tonight. The lineup we have for you is amazing. Two one-hour shows. First hour, we have Pastor Carl Gallup, a regular on the show, best-selling author, speaker, pastor. He used to be a police officer in a previous life. And judging by his latest book, he is also a poet. We are going to open up this book for you tonight. It's called Glimpses of Glory. 
And the pastor is going to take us into this deep understanding of the multidimensional reality of the Bible. I'm so curious to find out what exactly that is, the multidimensional reality of the Bible. Amazing, the book of books in the second hour. We're going to turn our attention to the pandemic with Paul Levy and the mind virus. How much of this whole thing is in our heads, folks? I look forward to discussing that with Paul. Let me welcome Pastor Gallup to the program. Welcome, Pastor. How are you? Ali, I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to meet you, my brother. Richard uh, speaks very highly of you. And yes, I I count him as a dear longtime friend. We've been through a lot together. And um, please wish him well for me. And my prayers are with him. I love uh, Richard and his family. I've been up to Toronto before. Uh, I preached a prophecy conference that he put on, and he invited me to come up. And uh, so I've I've actually met him in person and and his and his boys. And uh, anyway, it's just great to be here, and it's great to be with you. Well, we're very uh, happy to have you tonight, Pastor. And I did meet you briefly in that time where you were in Toronto. Um, so. I'm curious about this this new book, and I have to say that I'm really amazed at the lyric poetry that's through this book. I didn't realize you were <laughs> such a poet. Well, thank you for using that word, but I want your audience to know it's, it, it's not written in prose. I wasn't trying to be a poet. I, I was just, I was trying to bring the Bible alive and to insert the reader in the third person in into the Word of God, beginning in the Garden of Eden. Uh, actually, the book doesn't begin there. It's kind of written like a movie script where it kind of takes you into the future first and then backs up and shows you how it got there. Uh, but uh, but basically, the storyline goes from the Garden of Eden all the way through the Scriptures to the coming of the Christ, to uh, right up to the cross, to the resurrection, uh, and and then right on through to the Book of Revelation. The 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 John the Revelator who wrote it. I take you to the island of Patmos with him, uh, giving you a glimpse into his heart of what he saw, the glory he saw, and then you're actually with him on his deathbed as he enters behind the veil and goes into the presence of the Lord. So it's from the Garden of Eden to the death of John the Revelator. And it's written like a novel, uh, and and but but it's it's not it's it's fiction in that I have to insert some words and I and some conversation and I made up a few characters that kind of fill in the gaps and are a part of the story, but there's doctrinally it follows the word of God and and there's nothing fiction about the message that it's that it's telling. And uh, if you're describing me as a poet, I take that as a great compliment because, in other words, I guess you're saying that it kind of draws you in and it uh, and it and it's dramatic enough to pull you into the story. Is 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 that what you're saying? Well, it really touches the heart. Thank you know you. the way the way that is written. It touches the heart. Yes, it draws you in in that sense because when something touches the heart, you really are compelled to keep reading. Thank you. Um, Pastor, tell me about this multidimensional reality of the Bible. What do you have in mind when you say that? Oh, my goodness. Thank you, Allie, for for asking me. I love talking about this because, all right, first, let me just start 
at the beginner's level. Now, I'm not talking down to you, and I'm not talking down to your audience, and probably everything I'm going to say you already know, and you're being gracious and tossing me a softball, but 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 probably some in your audience have never even thought of this before, so let me start at, at, a, at a basic level, and then we can get as deep as you want to get with it, because it explains so much, like your next guest is going to talk about, you, you, you know, multiple dimensions, really, and UFOs and all of that, so, um, and, and I write a lot about that as well, but the bottom line is, yes, from the opening pages of the Word of God to the last pages of the Word of God, we are exposed literally to multiple dimensions of reality. Of course, you know, there's heaven, there's hell, there's paradise, there's the great chasm, uh, uh, there's, you know, Jesus, or I am the way, I am the gate. We could put that in the modern terminologies, and he, what he's saying is, I'm the portal. Nobody comes unto the Father, nobody comes unto the reality, the realm of the Father, but by me, I'm the portal by which you pass into this other dimension. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you shall be with me, you will be with me. And I love those words, you will be, you will have being, you, the real you, will have being with me in paradise. So, But how's that going to happen? They're dying on the cross in this world. In this physical life, they're going through agony and pain and, and reality. It's fleshly pain and reality. Yet, Jesus tells him, in just a few more moments, you close your eyes. <laughs> in death, the world calls it, but instantly you will be alive. We will walk through a veil. I am the portal. I am the way. I am the door. We're getting ready to step into paradise. And by the way, that word paradise in Greek, it has a corresponding word in Hebrew. Uh, in Greek, it's, it's, it's pronounced like paradisio, and, and it, paradise. But the Hebrew word that expresses that very same idea is Gan Eden, Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. It, that, that's what it means. He says, you'll be with me in the Garden of Eden, which, watch, watch, Allie, has always been there. It's another dimension that has been sealed off by the cherubim, the book of Genesis tells us, chapter 3. So, I mean, on and on and on I could go. The rich man and Lazarus and the great chasm in between, those, those, those are dimensions. And what I want the audience to understand is, look, God does not live in the universe. The Bible says Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, he, he created the universe and everything in it, and everything that was created was created by him and for him, and in him all things hold together. So he's outside of time. The Bible says a thousand years is like a day to him. A day is like a thousand years. He's in, a, he's in the, the outside of the dimension of time. He's outside the dimension of being limited to just this physical earthly realm. He, he says in Revelation, he says, I hold the keys to life and death. I hold the keys to everything, all the dimensions. I created them. Quantum physics, quantum mechanics. Jesus said, I created that. That's what holds everything together. I am light, light at the smallest level of quantum mechanics, photoelectric energy. That's what holds atoms together. And Jesus says, but I am the light. And in the very beginning in Genesis, we're told that the first thing God spoke, 
He spoke and created light, which holds everything together. So once the readers of God's Word, once we understand what the writer of Hebrews was trying to tell us, you cannot please God unless first you just believe that He is. And all things were made, things that we see were made by things that we cannot see. It meaning spiritual realm, also meaning the quantum level, the molecular atomic level, and and even smaller than that, all of it is, is God's creation. So we're introduced, if people know what they're looking for, and if they understand this concept, they will see this all the way through the Word of God. Every time an angelic visit is presented in the Bible, where are they coming from? I mean, look, look, Abraham in Genesis. It says he looks up and sees three men coming. Well, we discover as we continue to read, it's really Yahweh himself and two angels. The two angels are going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah. But it's as if they're standing with God, the creator. Now, where did they come from? Did they live in the mountains? Did they wander down from the mountains? Did they... You know, did they ride in on a spaceship? Did they fly in on an airplane at an airport somewhere? No, no. They walked through a portal. They came from another dimension. Paul writes about this in Ephesians 6 when he says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Oh, we see that in this world, but it's against the powers in the unseen and the, and, and the word in the Greek there that we translate in the English is unseen realms. We can put a more modern term there and say, in unseen dimensions of reality, these living beings exist. And they are angelic in some one realm. They are demonic in other realms. And we are living in this worldly realm. Does that make sense, Ali? That makes a lot of sense. It's fascinating. I think that people intuitively know that there is more to this world than yes. what we see with our naked eyes. Yes. Um, you know, you, you mentioned in your book, uh, there's references to the Passover. And as you were speaking, oh, yeah. the thoughts came to my mind that the blood of the lamb was placed on a doorpost. Yes. Uh, very much if, if Jesus is the lamb, uh, then, then somehow the cross is not just an atonement instrument, but looking at the doorpost, it is the gateway. It is to the gateway. Resurrected life. That's right. That was a picture. Everything about the Exodus and Ali. I'm so glad. I, I knew you would know this stuff, and and it thrills me to know this that other people understand this. But when you look at the Exodus account. It really happened. It was a real thing. Moses was real. The slavery in Egypt was real. Joshua was real. But it is also a picture. See, before God completes where he's going with all of this, he gives us pictures along the way. Pictures. And this is a huge picture. Pharaoh is a type of Satan. The children of Israel are God's people. They were in captivity and sin to Satan, if you will. They come out of that captivity. How? Uh, Moses is a prophet that shows them the way. What's the way? Take a lamb. Choose it on the 10th day of Nisan. Uh, slaughter it on the 14th day. And it has to all be done in a perfect way, in a perfect male lamb, etc., etc. Then you take the blood and you apply it at the top of the doorpost and on both sides. And then what's at the top is going to drip down to the bottom right under it. I mean, you've got the shape of the cross over a door and you have to go through that door under the blood of that lamb in order to 
to be passed over by God's judgment and wrath. So what do you do when you come inside? Will you consume the lamb? That's what did Jesus say? You must eat my flesh and drink my blood if you're going to follow me. You know, it's a picture of the Last Supper. It's a picture of his sacrifice. It's a picture of coming out of Egypt. It's a picture of the Passover. Uh, but, But a lot of people didn't understand it. The Bible says many of those that were around him left him at that time. He turned to his disciples and said, are you going to leave me too? And they said, no, you alone have the words of life. Who else would we turn to? Where else would we go? But they began to understand. And now we understand on the other side that that whole thing was a picture of salvation, of through Jesus, through the blood of the lamb. You have to go through the door. Jesus said, I am the door. I am the gate. In other words, I am the portal. Nobody comes into my father's house. And of course, the homes of the Israelites would represent that if they're under the blood. You got to go through the door under the blood shaped in the form of a cross. And by the way, the blood of the lamb was applied, the Bible says, with a hyssop branch. I mean, you know, what was Jesus the, offered up to him, the sponge with the wine and, and, and the medication that he refused? It was a hyssop branch while he was on the cross living it out as the Lamb of God. So, again, it's, it's on every page almost of Scripture. There's something there about the multiple dimensions of this life that we're living. Uh, I, I'm going to hush and let you ask questions and talk, but in, in a few minutes, please ask me about an earthly illustration that I give to people people about this multiple dimension thing, because some people still think, I just can't wrap my head around it, so I can give a parable. I can bring it down to a very fleshly way of understanding it that brings the spiritual to life. Well, but go ahead, so. go ahead, Pastor, because that's that's relevant to what you're saying. Okay, well, thanks. I, I appreciate it. Well, the, you can, okay, here's how I describe it. I think think, yes, it's in Glimpses of Glory. I actually have it in there, um, and I, I preach and use it so often I couldn't remember. But yes, it's in my book, Glimpses of Glory, in, in an appropriate place. But it, I use this example. Look, at the bottom of the deepest trenches in the ocean, Marianas Trench and some of those places, three, four, some almost five miles deep, we now know that at the bottom of these deep trenches and at the ocean floor are these hydrothermal vents just vents of hot water that pour out of the core of the earth. And, and it brings life, this water, and it, it brings an ecosystem four or five miles deep. So we now know from sending, you know, probes and submarines down there uh, that, and we've photographed these things. We know that around these vents are entire ecosystems. Think about it, three or four or five miles deep. I mean, next time you go up in an airplane, and you, you know, and you, yeah. and, and you get up 25,000 feet, close to 30,000 feet, look down. And that's what it's like. If you're at the surface of the ocean, you look down. I mean, everything disappears. Cars disappear. Humans disappear. Basically, roads begin to disappear. Even houses. All you see are the geographical patterns of the earth below. That's how deep these things are in the ocean. So I tell people, look. Around those ecosystems are, I'm going to call them hydrothermal vent crabs, fish, um, uh, plant life that they can feed on. I mean, it's, 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 it's an ecosystem. Now, let me just say this. What if hydrothermal vent fish, I'm, I'm going to be a little funny here, but this will make the point. It's a parable. What if they could talk to each other and they theorize with each other about their life and their world? I'm making air quotes, their world. 
So they look around them, and if they look out, all they see is darkness, blackness. If they look up, and how do they know which way is up, but they look up from their perspective, all they see is blackness. Well, of course, because they're five miles deep, four miles, three miles deep in water. That's all they know to their life and to their world. And so one of them theorizes with the other one and says, you know, our world goes on forever and ever. Look up. All you see is blackness. The, our universe, is just it just goes on forever and ever. There's no end. Well, but what they don't know is there is a so-called end, but it's another dimension. If they could go up and up and up and up, they could break through, see and experience the surface in the same way we do. What do they see? Nine, eight billion human beings, 27 million species of life, a whole new world. And if they could continue to look up, they would see the, the stars and the moon and the sun and deep space. If they looked in a microscope, they could see the quantum level. If they could get up in an airplane, they could fly over the earth and they could see, oh my gosh, we, all along we were existing in this multidimensional ball that's floating in space, hanging on nothing, which is another dimension. I mean, it's an example of dimension after dimension after dimension folding in on itself, and the fish have no idea, Ali. And so that's what the Word of God's trying to tell us. We're the fish at the bottom of the ocean. There are unseen realms to us, and just because we can't see them, just because we can't fathom them, does not mean they don't exist, and God's Word tells us they do. It's amazing. You know, the the, the creation, the universe is an absolute mystery to us. You're right, because we don't even know where we are. We don't even know yeah. where the universe is. We lack context. Right. And so anything is possible. We really have to open our minds. It's interesting how our culture has been taught to look at things through a very narrow perspective, going back to the oh, yeah. age of enlightenment and to secularism. And we have lost the awe of looking into the universe. When I go back to the Middle East, that's one difference I see there. There's a natural awe when people look into the night sky. They see yes. the world in that older way. That, yes. that even in the in the West, you know, we we can see that even here people saw it because looking back at the ages, theology was considered the chief of the sciences, that you yes. studied the creation in order to understand God. Yeah. You know, the idea yeah. the idea was that God had created everything and now we wanted to understand God by studying what he had created rather than having this narrow perspective. When we come back from our commercial break, I want to talk more about this tent of meeting, the temple, and how it may relate, relate to Christ. Yes, yes. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Okay. Hello and welcome back to the program as we continue our conversation with Pastor Carl Gallup. Um, I'm Ali Sietatan from Think Again Productions. So this multidimensionality, the multidimensional reality of the Bible, it's really fascinating what you're saying. I'm starting to understand what you mean by this word, the, the amazing interconnectivity of worlds, the world of God and angels, the realm of man, and the very way the Bible is put together. 
Let me ask you one thing that um, we were talking about the Passover lamb and the relationship between the doorpost, the gateway to the resurrected life and the cross. And looking at these pictures, you were saying the Bible presents pictures for us leading to Christ and leading to the New Testament. Yeah. I wonder about this picture of the tent of meeting. I wonder about the picture of the temple itself. Yeah. What is this painting for us? This this place suddenly that appears on the stage of history, uh, in the stage of the world where God and man are to meet. What yes. is this a picture of? Yeah, it's all connected to the seven feasts of the Lord, the temple, the tabernacle first, and then the temple. Um, by the way, I have my camera on. Can you see me? I can see you as well, yes. Okay, good. I, I don't know if the audience can or not. It doesn't really matter as long as they can hear me. But bottom line is, um, uh, yeah, it, it, all of these are pictures. I mean, this is how God communicates with us. He, we're created in his image. We can think. We can have pictures. That's Jesus taught in parables. What's he doing? He's planting pictures in people's minds and souls. So, as I said, before he does anything completely he first shows us pictures, the very word. I'm going to get to tabernacle and the temple because it's tied into the feast. All of the feasts surround basically the tabernacle and the temple. So, But the feast, as, as you probably know, the, in the English translation, it talks about the feast of the Lord. But in Hebrew, it says the moeds of the Lord. And, and, and that, that really means... Um, uh, practices or or rehearsals or uh, celebrations in a, in a in a celebratory way. I liken it like this: If you're going to have a wedding, the first thing you're going to have have is a rehearsal. Well, the rehearsal is real and it's fun, and everybody eats together, and of course they practice the you know the actual wedding. Uh, but it's a rehearsal. It's not the wedding. They're not married yet until the wedding takes place, but there's first a rehearsal. So all of the feasts of the Lord, and it might take too long to go through them all, but but all of the feasts of the Lord paint pictures, just like Passover and the lamb and the blood over the doorpost and eat the lamb and a male lamb and a one-year-old perfect male lamb and choose him on the 10th, sacrifice him on the 14th. We know that when Jesus came and went through the Eastern Gate and, and, and the crowds came, he was on the back of the donkey and they were calling him the Messiah. And it was on the 10th of Nisan. They were choosing their lamb. They didn't even realize it. On the 14th, they were gathered around saying, crucify him, crucify him. The same ones. They were saying, slaughter him. And then by Passover, here's the lamb on the cross. The same imagery we got way back in Exodus 12 from Moses. And so it's all coming to life now in Jesus Christ. Here's the real thing. Passover, all of that was a rehearsal. It was a rehearsal for the people to see, get the images, and those images would grow and grow and grow until Jesus finally came. So you're right, the tabernacle the same way. So they go into the wilderness. They want to have a way for God to, to commune with them and them with God. They know in their hearts that they were cut off from that personal communion that was, that was present in paradise, in the Garden of Eden. But Adam and Eve and Satan, that was cut off. So now the tabernacle, the book of Hebrews talks about this. It says that everything that's, that we see, the temple, the temple mount, the sacrifices, all of that, it's just a copy of, and the, and the book of Hebrews says this, of what's behind the veil. What's that? Another dimension. 
what's behind the veil, the reality, the real temple, which is the person and presence of God himself in perfection. We see it again in Revelation 21 and 22. We get the picture of it there. But so the tabernacle represents Jesus, our relationship with him. All of the feasts come through the priest and through the tabernacle, and and they all represent something along the line of, of, of Jesus. Passover, very quickly, represents the lamb that was slain, the Feast of, 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 of Unleavened Bread represents the bread without sin, without yeast. That's Jesus. I'm the bread of life. He was born in Bethlehem, uh, the house of bread, and he's the bread of life. And then, of course, the Feast of first fruits, which occurred the first day after the first Sabbath, after Passover, which was Sunday morning that year. Go now, ahead. Let me, let me ask you, along this line of thinking, when the ancient Hebrews left, uh, Egypt on that faithful Passover, yeah. the rabbis say that they reached Mount Sinai to receive the commandments yep. of their God on the day of Pentecost yes. on Shavuot. Yes, they so, celebrate it to this day. Yes, absolutely. And so this whole idea that somehow in the New Testament, that very uh, Moed, as you're saying, that appointed day of 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 the of the feast of weeks of uh, uh, of Pentecost yeah. is somehow activated and becomes the day where the Holy Spirit is given. Yes, and so tell us about that. This idea okay. that of the temple suddenly, you know, Paul uh, I have read says something along the lines of the human body has become the yes. temple of the living God. What does yes. that mean? Yes. No. It's it's a thank you. I, I love teaching this too. So uh, uh, yes. Um, okay. Yeah. The, the the modern Hebrews even today they celebrate as you said Pentecost Shavuot. Um, as one of the things they celebrate is that this represents the birth of Israel at Mount Sinai, that the nation was born, watch this, at the giving of the law. Well, how was the church born? At the giving of the Spirit. Jeremiah 31, 31 tells, I'm going to make a new covenant, not the law, now by the Spirit my word is going to be written upon your heart. So, I mean, it's all right there in the Word of God. Um, but isn't it interesting that God's two witnesses the olive tree and the lampstand. Jesus said the lampstand is the church. God says to Israel, I've called you my olive tree. Paul talks in Romans 11, the olive tree. The Jews and Gentiles are grafted in and out depending upon their belief or unbelief. And he calls them the real Israel together. And so all of this is wrapped up. Israel and the church are born on the same day, one by the law, one by the spirit. So that's an amazing thing. And then um, the other question you asked me that I said I loved to answer. You remember what it was? The temple of the human body becomes the yes. temple of the Holy yes. Spirit. Okay. The meeting the place of man and God. Yes. By the time we get to the New Testament, the Bible is so clear about this. And, and when I share this with people, it usually just blows them away and wakes them up because we've, there's, there's so much mythology about new temples on the Temple Mount and, you know, and all. But, but this, this is not what Paul teaches. And, and what he says is, listen, Paul was called up to paradise before John the Revelator. And John the Revelator, I mean, Paul... Uh, died in 67 AD, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So when Paul writes all of his writings from Romans right on through, um, he he uses, in the English translation, you see the word temple about 16 times through all of his books. 
But there's two words in the Greek for temple, two words in the Hebrew, and they correspond as well. But in the Greek, we're reading the New Testament. It's hieron and naos or naon. Um, and, and there's two differences. Hieron means the building, the temple on the temple mount, the whole building of the temple edifice, Solomon's hieron. But naos means, it can mean the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, but it's used most often in the New Testament to mean the holy place and meaning the body, the human body, the human heart that's regenerate and born again. It also means the church, the body of believer, Jew and Gentile, become the naos of God. So when we look at Paul's writings, one time he uses the word he, Aaron, in 1 Corinthians when he's teaching about um, he's teaching about Jesus being the greatest sacrifice and, and the fulfillment of all this. But he says, now when the priests go up to the Hi-Aran and offer their sacrifices, and then he goes on with his sermon. That's the only time. Now, he's living in the time when the temple is still there. But from there on, every other time the word temple is used, he never speaks of the temple on the Temple Mount again. I think it's because he knew it was going to be gone in a few years, because when he went to paradise, I think he was shown that. Jesus prophesied it, but he never told his disciples when. I think Paul knew that it was coming soon after his death, so he didn't even talk about the temple. Instead, he said, let me tell you, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You are bought with a price. You're not your own. You are the dwelling place of God when you are born again. And then he talks to the church. He says, don't you know that you are the temple of God? And then in Ephesians 2, he says, don't you know that the Jew and the Gentile under the blood of Jesus Christ are being born, are being brought together. The two are being made one. And they're being brought to peace and being made one under the blood of Jesus. And you are the temple of God. You are the new temple of God. And every time he uses the word temple, he uses the word naos. He never again uses the word he aran. So what he's talking about, Ali, he's, he's, he's telling us that the temple, Jesus himself said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. And John says he was talking about himself. He is the temple. By the time we get to Revelation 21 and 22, we're told there is no temple in heaven because God himself is the temple. Jesus is the temple. The lamb is the temple. And we are now dwelling. We're tabernacling, it says, with him and him with us. When, so, we, anyway. when we come back uh, from the commercial, Blake, I want you to tell us about the battle for the restoration of all things, which is underway. Okay. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back to the program. I'm here with Pastor Carl Gallup uh, discussing his latest book, The Glimpse of, Glimpses of Glory, uh, which you can buy on Amazon. A fascinating book. Tells the entire story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation with this quality of lyric poetry, it really touches the heart and opens up deep insight into scripture. Um, we were discussing the multidimensional reality of the Bible, uh, the appointed days, the pictures that exist in the Old Testament, pointing to the new, as well as this idea that the body is the meeting place of man and God as we become the very temple of God. Pastor, let me ask you something uh, that I read in your book. You speak about the battle. For the restoration of all things is now underway. 
What do you mean by the restoration of all things? What yeah. is it that needs to be restored? Allie, thank you. That's the whole message of the Word of God. Genesis 3 tells us what happened to this world. Listen, this world is filled with beauty, the night sky, the mountains, the oceans, the lakes, the rivers, the, the, the nature, the animals, even people. It's filled with beauty, but it's also filled with darkness. It's filled with corruption. The Bible says the whole creation groans in anticipation of the restoration of all things. Um, it, it's, 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 and so we're in the middle of this fallen world. And so Genesis 3 tells us what happened. The rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 to the coming of Jesus goes to the cross. That's why I went to the cross, to reconcile us. To, to, to back to our Father so that we could be back in paradise like it was meant from the beginning, but only for those now who are willing to choose God and serve Him freely, by free will. We're not robots, we're not puppets on a string, but we come to Him confessing that we need Him. We repent. He covers us in His blood. He receives us. The Bible says, to them who believed upon Jesus, He gave the right to be called. In Hebrew, it would be B'nai Elohim the sons of God. That's a word right out of the Old Testament that means like the angelic beings, the divine beings, like Adam and Eve were B'nai Elohim until they sinned. They were divine. They would never die. And the Bible ends by saying no more pain, no more death, no, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. All things have been restored. All things have been made new. So from Genesis 3 to Revelation 21 and 22, the whole word of God is about this work that God is doing. He's moving in all that direction. Now, there's one verse that says it all. People, if somebody, you know, sometimes people joke and say, well, the hardest question in the world is to answer, uh, what's the meaning of life? Actually, it's the easiest one. And the Bible answers it in one verse. What's the meaning of life? Ephesians 1, 9. Behold, God has revealed his will to us. He is bringing everything in heaven and on earth back together again under one head, Jesus Christ. Wow. That's, that's the meaning of life. It's the restoration of all things. But the problem is Satan thinks he owns it. He stole it, but he thinks by stealing it and by having it for so long and, and immersing his darkness through the demonic that are with him, uh, in other realms, yet they can come. They, God is allowing them for a while to come into our realm and to go back to their realm. Into our realm, they manipulate people, they manipulate thrones, they manipulate powers, they infest religiosity, they infest the church, they infest governments, they infest Hollywood, they infest uh, media, they infest the internet, they infest anywhere there's power. He's the prince of the power of the air. And so what's God doing? He's restoring it all through Jesus Christ. It, listen, I compare it like this. People say, yeah, but you say, you say victory in Jesus, that the battle is won. But it doesn't look like it. It looks like it's still a mess. No, 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 no. It's like a football game. The game started in the first quarter. We're now in the fourth quarter. We have the ball. We're on the five-yard line of making a touchdown. The clock is running out. There's about five minutes left. We are beating the other team 85 to nothing. Now, are we going to win this game? Yeah. Well, what are we going to do with these other five minutes? We're going to play it down to the end. 
Doesn't matter. And the other team, if they have any guts at all, they're going to play to save face. They're going to try to at least make us fumble or intercept a ball or hurt some of us, maybe sack our quarterback and break his leg, or they're going to try to recover a fumble and at least make a touchdown and to kind of stick it in our face. Revelation 12, 12 says this, woe unto you earth in those last days, because Satan has been thrown down to you. He is filled with rage because he knows his time is short. Uh, translation, it's the fourth quarter, five minutes to go. He's behind 85 points, and he's angry. He's embarrassed. He's humiliated. So now he's filled with rage, and he's going to cheat. He's going to do cheap hits. He's going to do everything he can, take somebody out. He's going to stomp all over the candy store on the way out because he's mad because he got caught shoplifting. And that's what's happening. The battle has been won. It was won at Calvary's cross. It was won by the empty tomb, and Satan knows it. So and why did we find ourselves in such a tale, like why was humanity targeted by Satan to start with well, in listen, the Garden of Eden? Yeah, in the, in the scheme of all things, the Bible says Jesus was the lamb slain before the, before the foundation of the world. It says that in Revelation, and Peter talks about it. I think it's in First Peter. He says, and so what does that mean? That means when God breathed into Adam's nostrils, he knew all of this was going to happen. He knows everything. He knew it. Why did he do this? Because when he made us in his image, see, he made the angels in his image too. The angels have total freedom of will. They, they, they can create like we can create. They can't create like God creates, and neither can we. We, can't, we cannot manufacture a gnat, and neither can Satan. Why? Because a gnat has life in it. Only God can. Now, Satan can get involved in technology. We can develop technology and have demonic influence and artificial intelligence and artificial robots and humans. But he can't breathe life into a pile of dirt and turn it into a living, thinking, communicating, creating creature. God can. And he did it with the angelic realm. That's why some of them left and went with Satan. They could choose. Hold on to that thought as we come back from okay. the break. You can finish your thought. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back to the program. We are here with Pastor Carl Gaps discussing, you know, the true nature of reality. And this conversation is just going so deep. I'm really enjoying it. Um, so we were talking about why is it that Satan, this angelic creature, yeah. targeted the human race, targeted Adam? Yeah. What, why did he do that? Okay. Well, first of all, some of it's a mystery. The, the Word of God doesn't tell us all the details, but we get enough to at least get the general character and nature and story. And so I, I was just saying, taking the scriptures, I'm piecing the story together for your audience. And that is before God created, before he breathed Adam— he knew all of this was going to happen, but it was done for our benefit. See, we're the 
we're the we're the um, you know the ancestors, if you will, of um, of uh, of Adam and Eve. I mean, you know, but 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 they 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 brought death in by their disobedience, and boy, that's another whole show. What that was, and what happened, and what really happened in the Garden of Eden. I've written a book on that called Gods of Ground Zero. But the bottom line is. God knew all of this. He knew it all was going to happen. Ezekiel 28, he says in Ezekiel 28 about Satan, it's a compound prophecy. It starts off talking about the king of Tyre, but then it moves into a description of Satan. He said, you were a guardian cherub. You were my guardian cherub. You were the most beautiful thing I created. You were the most intelligent thing I created. In fact, he goes on to talk about another scripture. He was a worship leader uh, of, of heaven. He was one of the living creatures, Ezekiel tells us, um, and and that's what a cherub is, cher- the cherubim. They're the leechers that surround the throne of God. And, and so he does Isaiah 14 also talk about the five I wills, the yeah, ambition yeah, you're going a, there? Yeah, okay. you're right, Ali. That's exactly where I was headed. Ezekiel 28 tells us his, it, who he is and that he was, he, it, God says, you profaned the garden. I put you in the garden. See, Satan was placed there as the guardian cherub, like the governor of the garden. See, when God created the earth, he, it, he stepped into this new dimension he created, and he chose this planet for whatever reason, and there he put his throne. There he he brought the sons of God and and placed them and and man and the angel what we call the angelic realm they had communion God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening when Satan tempted and said you can be like us why didn't Adam and Eve say us us who what are you talking about no he knew Satan was one of them uh, he, they knew they communicated more than likely with the angelic realm until they were cut off at the fall. So it was meant to be where this first creation of God, the angelic realm, the sons of God who shouted for joy, the book of Job tells us, when the earth was created and Adam and Eve were created, they were already in existence. So God creates a whole new playground, if you will. And, and he creates Adam and Eve and tells them, now you, this is your domain, you fill the earth, subdue it, uh, multiply, be fruitful. And in the meantime, Satan was growing. We don't know when it happened, but he was growing more and more envious and jealous. Ezekiel 38 tells us, I mean, 28 tells us, Isaiah 14 tells us, I want this. I want this. I will, I will be God of this planet right here. You know, you've got your own thing. I'm going to take this. And so he could, but he had to get it from Adam and Eve. They were the legal holders of it. So, so to get it, he had to profane it. He had to make them profane it with him so that God would turn his back on it, would have to. And so they did, and he did, and God knew they would. And God, go ahead. Looking forward into the meaning of life and, and how all this contributes to that knowledge, isn't it is it true that Paul says that the destiny of 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 the restored human race will be to judge the angels? Yes. 
Yeah, and and Paul speaks of that. Uh, we get another taste of that from Revelation about we will rule and reign with him. There's, of course, the great white throne. The the the, the books are open. Uh, you know. The, so, so could so, it be that Satan wanted this for himself? He wanted to be exactly the first principle of the creation. Exactly. And here God comes and surprises everyone by creating those who will be his image bearers. Exactly. And then. He's he sees that as competition, and so he figures if he can take out the competition, he can carry out his personal ambitions. Is that a possibility? That is a possibility. As I say, we don't know the details right. in black and white. In other words, there's not scripture that says what you said, but you can certainly, and I agree with you, extrapolate uh, a what I call a biblical assumption. In other words, it's an assumption, but there are biblical connections that give it great credence. And so I'm I'm with you in that. And so it, I see. Is ahead. it safe to say that what you're describing here on the cross with the Passover lamb and all that, what is happening on this planet? Is it safe to say that it will affect the future destiny of the creation, that the events on Earth not only affect the human race, but affect the cosmic tale of God's creation? Uh, absolutely. That's a beautiful, poetic way to put it, brother. Yes. I, no, I, I do. And, and I think the Bible, it doesn't use those exact words, but it says that. I, I think the Bible says that, yes. That's fascinating. In your book, you say, as far as divine reclamation prices goes, and the exact location and precise timing of each subsequent event is vital. Every detail is now in the of completing its appointed convergence. Yes. This night has been planned since the beginning of time. Yes. What are these convergences? What is this mysterious night that brings together all these points? Well, I think there I was referring to the night of, of the the birth of the Christ child. I think that's where, where you're pulling that sentence from. Um, the book's about 300 pages long, so I, I'm, <laughs> but, I'm, but, but I believe that's the night. I was just talking, I was trying to set the stage for the holiness of that night. We talk about, you know, oh, holy night and, you know, silent night, holy night. Yeah, it's on that night that the plan at the throne— that was before the foundation of the world was planned, it was beginning to converge and coming, bursting into forth into flesh and into reality. The Word was becoming flesh on that night. That Word would eventually, 33 years later, wind up as the sacrificial lamb on the cross, opening the portal, the door, to the throne room of God. And the resurrection would prove it. The resurrection was God's thumbing his nose at Satan. Is Jesus saying, I won, you lost. I mean, we're still playing the game here, but we're in the fourth quarter, and I'm so far ahead, you will never, ever, ever even come close to winning again. Now, so in the Gospel that's, of that's Luke, what I mean. In the Gospel of Luke, we see that Jesus comes back from the dead in a physical manner. He tells his disciples, put your hands in my wounds, touch yes. me. He asks, he says that he's not a ghost, that he has flesh and bone. That's right. And he asks for food. Are we to understand that in there is a future destiny on this planet, a prophetic destiny? Is the, the Lord going to return to the earth as a man and actually establish a physical kingdom on this planet and usher in a new age of history? Or is that really just a symbol for something else? All right. Everything you said before the word or, the answer is yes, yes, and yes. And 
It could also be a symbol of what may happen after all of that, because the Bible says we will rule and reign with him, and there are implications that he probably will continue his creative process with those that now love him and are serving him as obedient uh, to him and not rebelling against him, not pulling a Judas on him like Satan did in the garden. And so, yeah, I, it's it, we will rule and reign with him, and, and I, we will be physical, but we will be fitted like Adam and Eve were, they were flesh and blood, but they would never die. They were divine. Peter says it like this. I think it's first Peter. I think it's chapter four where he says, by coming to Christ, you have escaped the corruption of your flesh, which was brought about by your immorality, your epithumia, it says in Greek, uh, and that ties to sexual sin and, and all kinds of filth. He says, but you've been recovered from that. And because of that, your divine nature is going to be restored to you. That word divine doesn't, doesn't mean we're going to become gods of our own planets or doesn't mean we're going to be like grow wings and become angels. It means we're going to be like Adam and Eve, restored. Wow. No more That's death, not- no more pain, no more crying, flesh and blood, never to die again. And we will rule and reign with whatever Jesus decides to create as eternity goes forward. You know, Pastor, that makes a lot of sense to me because if God is good and God is love, then he has to heal the human condition. Yes. It can't just be a salvation of the soul. It has to be this world, this painful world we all live in. These painful lives we all experience have to be changed. There has to be a new heaven and a new earth and all of these things that the Bible promises. It was such a fascinating conversation. Folks, you got to go out and buy this book, Glimpses of Glory. You can get it on Amazon. It will touch your heart. I am convinced of it. It's a powerful and insightful uh, tale of the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Thank you so much for being our guest tonight, Pastor. Thank you very much. Ali, it's my pleasure. God bless you, my brother. I hope we can get to do something again in the future, and please give Richard my love. I will. Thank you, sir. Okay. Well, guys, don't go away because we'll be coming back with Paul Levy, our next guest. Is the pandemic in your head? You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back, everyone, to the program. This is Ali Sierratan uh, sitting in for Richard Sarrett. Richard is under the weather tonight. He's by a nice, hot, warm, cozy 
fireplace with a hot cup of tea listening to the show. Uh, he's Tonight he's an audience member. I have the pleasure of welcoming Paul Levy to the show. And I'm very, very intrigued by his thinking and look forward to opening it up for you. Um, the pandemic. We'll, we're going to be turning our attention to the pandemic and to the mind of virus. We've all heard for the past two years of this virus. But what about this idea of the mind virus? How much of this whole thing is in our heads, folks? Um, help me welcome Paul Levy, a author. Um, he's going to be opening this up for us um, right now. Um, are you there, Paul? Yeah, I'm here. Well, good to have you. Wetico, Healing the Mind Virus That Plagues Our World, a sacred plant book. So tell me, what is Wetico? What does that stand for, this term? Sure. So, you know, and that's one way of saying it. I call it Wetico, and it's, it's a mind virus whose origin is in the Native American tradition in the Algonquin language, really. And um, it's a psycho-spiritual disease of the soul that's afflicting humanity. And this isn't just my, you know, crazy idea or a theory. Every single spiritual tradition from time immemorial has been pointing at Watiko. They've just been calling it by different names and having different symbols. And um, it works through the blind spot of, you know, our mind. And it's a form of being blind. It's a psychic blindness, but it's a peculiar form of blindness that actually thinks it, it's, um, it's seeing. And it actually thinks it's more sighted than people who actually see. And it works through the projective tendencies of the mind in such a way that we entrance ourselves, in that we hypnotize ourselves. So, it has, you know, this virus, this mind virus, it's the real deadly virus that's afflicting our species. And we all have it in potential. Um, it feeds off of fear, feeds off of separation, and it works through the projective tendencies of the mind in such a way that, you see, it has no creativity, but it plugs into our creativity to the extent we're not in touch with our creative nature. This mind virus plugs into our creativity and turns it against us. And in the Bible, in the apocryphal text, they talk about it. It's called the counterfeiting spirit. It, it got written out of the Bible because I point out that Watiko was on the editorial board. You see, it can't stand to be exposed. When we see it, we take away its power and we empower ourselves. So it's this shape-shifting bug. And what it does by being a counterfeiting spirit, it impersonates us. It puts us on. And if, if we're not awake in that moment, it'll offer us uh, a false version of ourselves. Oh, I'm wounded, I'm limited, I'm traumatized. And if we identify with its version of ourselves, then it has us. Because then it can both, it, it can control us and manipulate us. And what I'm describing, you see, it has no power over us when we're in touch with our true nature. So what I'm describing, three, there are three aspects to it. You know, we give ourselves away, we identify with who we're not, and we then forget our creative agency. That's a recipe for madness, and that's Watiko in a nutshell, because Watiko is a collective psychosis. 
Fascinating, fascinating, folks. Um, if you want to, you know, learn more about this book, you can buy it on Amazon. Uh, it's by Paul Levy, Watico, the healing the mind virus that plagues our world. So it ha your book is three parts, and I want to kind of dig into each section. Uh, and we don't have time to open up every chapter, but just to kind of have an overview of your thinking. And this uh, pandemic, as, as you're suggesting, definitely has tapped into fear there's been so much fear going around uh the world since this, all the, the first images came from china on television of people with masks going around spraying gas into neighborhoods of grabbing people and putting them in cars and taking them away i mean it just seems so scary and from there it's just been a more and more fear coming so are you suggesting that a lot of this is in our psyche what what I'm saying... What about the reality of it? Yes. Yeah. No, I'm not saying it's not... I mean, that's absurd to say it's not real. It's as real as we are. It's what's happening, you know, and w whether you call that real or not, I mean, whatever. That's why I, I say it's as real as we are. What I mean is that the origin of this process, so the source of all of our problems the madness that we're playing out, the evil that's taking over our world and that's enacting itself, that the, the source of all of that and the solution is to be found one place and one place only, and that's within our psyches. And what Watiko does, Watiko, it's a mind virus. And so it will distract us in such a way that we then think the problem is outside of ourselves. And we try to find solutions outside of ourselves. And all the while, it it feeds off of our unconsciousness, whereas the, the, you know, like I'm saying, people who think, oh, I'm saying something so crazy and so far out, well, it's actually so obvious that the source of the collective madness is to be found within our psyche. I mean, I can't imagine something that's more undeniable than that. So that, in essence, is what I'm saying. In the, now, you, you talk about the Kabbalah's remarkable idea Tell me about that. How does the Kabbalah fit in your thinking? Yeah, well, you know, like I was saying, every spiritual tradition from time immemorial has been pointing at Watiko. And when I finished my first book on Watiko, um, Dispelling Watiko, I began to study the Kabbalah, and it blew my mind when I realized, oh my God, they're creatively pointing at Watiko, but just in a really interesting way. And they're pointing at that um, within the very darkness is to be found the true light. And that, you know, the seeming evil is actually holding the light captive. And they have a whole cosmology explaining that. But that the darkness ultimately has no reality. That it, it's like a parasite. It doesn't even exist. And yet, you know, this phantom that has no actual existence... You know, because Watiko, just I should point out, it has no independent existence. It's not like people hearing about it should be afraid. Oh, no, there's a mind virus and I should be afraid. No, that's Watiko. If we buy into the fear, it doesn't even exist. It has no reality whatsoever, just like the Kabbalah points at, and yet it can kill our species. Okay, that's pointing at the incredible untapped power that we have, each one of us. We have this incredible creative agency, but the extent that we're not awake to it, then 
this what he called bug or the Kabbalah, they, they have their own language for it, it parasitically feeds in and it's like a vampire that drains our life force and it, it will use our own creative energy against us. And so as this mind virus attacks the psyche of the human race, um, how do we recognize that that this is happening to us? So if I'm a, a person out there and now I'm wondering, I'm, I'm examining my thinking as you're speaking, I'm examining my thought processes in my life, and I'm thinking, wait, am I being affected by Watico? How does a person, first of all, recognize that they are being affected by this mind virus? Yeah, well, well, I would say, you know, one very easy way is to just consider, oh, well, am I, am I, you know, have I achieved my, my real potential? Am I evolving, you know, as, as a human being, you know, into my fullness, into my wholeness? Am I really connected with my creativity? And am, am I expressing myself in a creative way, you know, throughout my, my day? And if you're not, well, then the question is, like, well, what's stopping you? Because the, the point is, it's not just that our species has fallen asleep. No, it's more than that. It's as if there's this malevolent energy that's invested in keeping us asleep. So for people to really self-reflect and to ask them, well, am I attaining my full potential? Am I evolving? Am I creatively expressing myself? And if you're not, what's stopping you? That's then you're on the trail of Watiko. Fascinating. So you're saying that somehow creativity and living to your full potential, these are things that are hindered by this mind, you know, mind virus. It kind of reminds me of this a concept of an evil spirit nearly, yeah, uh, you know, no, that we'll plagues talk. people. If you, yeah, you know, well, the drawing thing is, from, you know, in the psyche, the greatest poison in the human psyche is, you know, unexpressed creativity. And so I point out that one of the real medicines for this mind virus is to get in touch with our creativity. And I'm not just talking about, oh, to be, you know, doing painting or drawing, or I'm talking about that every moment of our lives, we are literally creating our experience. There's no one else doing that. We're creating our experience of ourselves, and we're creating our experience moment by moment of the world. But to the extent we're not in touch with our creative agency, then all of a sudden, you know, it gets turned against us. And, and we feel, you know, sort of depressed or repressed or anxious or fearful. And all of those energies, you know, they're, they're food for Watiko. And we live in a very um, machine-like world. We're often employees of, of factories, essentially, of corporations that, you know, invite us into a routine. Uh, and that kind of stifles this creativity as well. We don't. Uh, so you're talking very much about a mindset, essentially, then. Yeah. Well, the thing is, it, it's interesting. When we are afflicted, and we all potentially have Watiko, it exists in the collective unconscious, but when mm. we actually become afflicted, we, can, we become like, like a zombie, like a robot, like an automaton with no creativity, you know, programmed in. And, and you know, and we sort of, with the, the transhumanism thing and the AI thing and the whole tech thing, you know, we see that happening more and more in the world. You see, the thing about Watiko 
It's an inner disease of the soul that has a magical ability to extend itself out into the world and configure outer events so as to reflect the inner state of a ski that's under its thrall. Now, what I just described, where the outer world is actually reflecting the inner condition of one's mind, that is exactly a description of a dream. You see, so what Hiko is the dreamed-up phenomena that we are collectively dreaming up the psychic epidemic together. The origin is within us, but it's actually revealing to us the dreamlike nature. This is a collectively shared dream, and that's what what Watiko actually can show us. So encoded within the evil of Watiko, it's actually helping us. It's helping us to, to, to wake up, to wake up to our situation to wake up to the dreamlike nature and to wake up to who we actually are and our creative power. Now, that's fascinating. And if someone wanted to really tap into this fear on purpose, then they would have a lot of power in manipulating society. Totally. Well, the thing is, you know, as soon as we get isolated and we identify, you see, because the thing about Watiko it offers us this identity, a fictitious identity that's not who we are. Who we are is interconnected and interdependent with each other. There's no separate self that exists in isolation to be found anywhere. But if we identify with a separate self, then all of a sudden, if I'm a separate self over here, well, then there's others who are not me. And then as soon as there's others, there's fear. And as soon as there's fear, well, that's the, that's the superfood for Watiko. So, you know, the thing about Watiko, it, it literally will create the, the, the polarization, the extreme polarization we see in the world, and, and then it'll create this fear and this otherization, and, and, it just, and then it, you know, it just reinforces, it just feeds off of that polarization and that fear. It's a spiral downwards at that point. The, um, you say that the COVID-19 is a symbol of a much deeper infection. What is this deeper infection? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm saying that, you know, COVID-19 is actually it, what's happening since in the pandemic is Watiko. If, if you think what I'm saying is some weird thing, just open your eyes and look. What's playing out in the world? You see, if people think that COVID is, is a physical virus, is, is solely a physical virus, they are mistaken. No, no, no. Take a look at how this, this alleged virus has come into our world and into our mind and affected every aspect of our life. It's affected politics and the economics and what we think about, what we dream about, what we talk about, what we wear, how we interact. It affects every single aspect of our lives. So this this COVID virus actually has multiple vectors, like multiple sort of bodies. It has a physical, you know, aspect, but then it has this, this mind aspect or a behavioral aspect or a psychological aspect or an emotional aspect or a spiritual aspect. It's multidimensional. And when you begin to see that, you begin to realize, wait, all of those behaviors and all of the things I just listed, they all mediated through the psyche. And the psyche is the arena of Watiko. So in other words, Watiko actually flavors our perceptions and it skews our interpretations 
that we how we interpret the inkblot of the waking world, and it actually distorts the meaning that we impute to events in such a way to create fear and to create polarization and then to feed the mind virus. And so what I'm pointing out is that the COVID pandemic is revealing that to us. It's actually, you see, the thing about Watiko, it only has power over us to the extent we don't see it. Okay? When we see it, we take away its power and we empower ourselves. COVID and the pandemic is a way of actually, it's, it's a revelation of the Watiko mind virus, which is the real virus. That's the deadly virus that's afflicting our species, not COVID. Um, you talk about uh, René Girard, the French philosopher, and his take on scapegoating in the shadow. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Well, one, one very simple way of understanding, like, you know, when people like scapegoat, when they project the shadow, that's the psychological dynamic. That's the, the engine of Watiko. And what I mean, you know, if I'm not in touch with my own darkness, with my own shadow, well, what's going to happen? I'm going to project it outside of me. And, you know, just one way to understand this is if you're, if you're in a dream, if you project out your shadow in a dream, well, the dream then will reflect that back because it's nothing other than a reflection of your mind. And into the dream will walk somebody or a group of people who will carry your own darkness. And, and once that happens, now you have proof, you have evidence that the evil and the shadow is outside of yourself. So you get even more convinced of your own light and your own just being right. And... And then as soon as you become even more fixed in that viewpoint of seeing the darkness outside of yourself, the, the waking dream or the night dream, they just reflect that back. They give you evidence confirming your viewpoint because, you know, what a dream is is nothing other than your reflection. And I'm pointing out that, that we're in a dream right now. This is a waking collective dream. And the more you become, you, you know, the, um, as you see the darkness more and more outside of yourself, the more eventually you want to destroy it, which is an externalization of the initial process of wanting to destroy and exterminate your own shadow. So your inner process is getting acted out in the world to destroy the carriers of your own darkness, and by doing, come possessed by the very evil that you're trying to destroy. That's what Tico. I see, and so this idea that the darkness hides in the light is kind of what you're describing and that it, that it's here it's in plain sight but it's hidden because it appears tell me about that what do you mean yeah, by the darkness sure. hides well, like, in the light? For, like, like an example if somebody you know thinks oh no i'm just a good person and i'm just you know a loving person and they're not in touch with their shadow they can be overly identified with the light but well you know i can talk for myself mm -hmm. when i meet somebody like that i run the other way because they're dangerous because they're not conscious of their own potential for darkness. So if they're overly identified with the light, they're going to be unconsciously seeing the evil outside of themselves. You know, they're going to be scapegoating or projecting the shadow. And that is the activity of the shadow. But they're unconscious of it. That's what makes them dangerous. So here they are appearing to be all light. And yet at their core, they're actually a vector for darkness. Fascinating. And so this this um, infection of the mind, this Watiko, uh, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it uh, oh, well. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Watiko, is that how you're pronouncing it? Watiko? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. 
Watiko, this infection of the mind that's, you know, collective and among us all, it also has taken hold of government officials, it seems, all around the world at, to different extents. And I want to talk about kind of how is it that as a society we can move past it if those who control the means of communication continue to be in it. But we need to take a break and we'll be back with Paul Levy discussing the mind virus. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back to the program. This is Ali Sieratan sitting in for Richard Siret. Ali Sieratan from thinkagainproductions.com. Have a look at the website. Amazing information about uh, UFOs and, and biblical history and prophecy and all of that good stuff. So we're discussing with Paul Levy uh, a very interesting idea of a mind virus that this entire um, pandemic has triggered um what seems to me nearly like like a counterfeit spirit a, a spirit of fear that infects the psyche and he's been telling us that you know you can really get rid of this by first of all not empowering it and i find that um very interesting i want to come back to that before the break the question that i have for him is how is it that we um as a people as individuals, can move beyond this fear uh, caused by the mind virus when government officials, uh, World Health Organization, um, you know, the the local governments of nations, uh, um, you know, the, the, the huge difference that exists between, let's say, the Chinese government and the way they're handling the pandemic and the way we are in the West, and the media that is the loudspeaker that tells us every two seconds, uh, you know, all the bad news. I guess that's they say bad news is sells papers. Um, how can we get past this fear when constantly, you know, children go to school with masks on their face. They look at each other, look at their teacher. How can we get past this fear when it's we're constantly reminded of it? Yeah, no, totally. Well, I mean, there's this mind control. This is, you know, in a way, the greatest psyops in the history of the world. And, um, you know, so I guess the the real answer to your question is to be in touch with your true self. Because then, when you're in touch with your true self, you don't just take on other people's ideas or other people's image of what's happening. You become an empiricist. You, you really explore your own experience and investigate for yourself. But so many people are not used to doing that, and they just drink the Kool-Aid and take in the mainstream propaganda, you know, and become, you know, like, like sheeple or a lot of different names for it. And um, then, you know, they, they just become part of the hive mind. And so a major part of it is to actually think for yourself and, you know, I mean, it's exactly like I'm a Buddhist practitioner. When the Buddha was teaching, he kept on saying to his students, please don't take my word for it. Do the experiment yourself. And the experiment was to look within your own mind. And, you know, so if we actually investigate the source of our experience, 
you know, both the good and the bad parts of our experience, you know, we're going to discover something uh, about ourselves and about our incredible creative power and that we're colluding with the mind virus. This mind virus, which is like a vampire, it has no power over us whatsoever unless we give our power away. It can't steal our soul or anything like that, but it tricks us into giving it away. You know, so that's what I'm pointing at is seeing how we're colluding with it. That makes that makes sense to me in the sense that we, with our own minds, empower the fears that come over us. Um, now, when it... Do you believe that there is a mind, uh, a nefarious mind, behind this virus? Is this a naturally occurring phenomenon uh, that is in your in your thinking is teaching us something about ourselves, or is should we look at this from a conspirational point of view? Um, was this released on purpose? Essentially, that's really what I'm asking. I think. So wait, so you're talking about the actual, like, what you call mind virus? Um, yes. Yeah. Was so, this? So the, the, yeah. Right. The thing is, there were all these theories. I mean, because like I'm saying, every you know, this isn't anything new. I'm just a translator. I'm just a person trying to translate this indigenous wisdom into modern, into a modern psychological idiom. And so, you know, there are all these theories about, oh, there was a collective trauma in our species, or there were like these negative ETs, and, and you know, who, I can't say one way or the other, but what I can say is that the actual genesis of the mind virus is in this moment, or not. We, in other words, are dreaming up Watiko. We are participating in its creation if we if we choose to stay unconscious. So the point is, is that the actual, like the origin of the virus is right now, you know, in potential. And our, and, and you know, and the thing I'm pointing out, because Watiko only has power over us to the extent it's not seen. You see, it's an inner virus of the soul that actually explicates itself and works itself and configures events in the world. So to begin to see how it's informing and giving shape to events in our world that are reflecting the state of the psyche that's under its thrall, and that it's actually informing our unconscious reactions to its appearance in the world. To begin to see that correlation between the inner and the outer, that's to see the dream, and that's to dispel Watiko. I see. I see what you're saying. I think I'm following your train of thought. One, um, uh, I when I think about the Buddhist. Uh, approach to things, this idea of sitting in meditation. Uh, I believe the story of the Buddha was that you know he 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 looked far and wide um, for for this elusive enlightenment, and when he could find it, and he finally sat down, um, a series of illusions of Maya came over him, and as his mind was able to dismiss each of the illusions. That came over him, the fears that came over him, the pride that came over him. Um, he eventually transcended in his mental state to a place, uh, well, nirvana, whatever that is. Um, and there, you know, he he saw reality for what it was, um, and so he became, you know, this awakened teacher and and to lead others. The thing with that kind of a thinking. 
is this really a solution that can be offered to the masses of humanity? Um, when I look at our culture, I mean, if, you, if you were in an Eastern culture where these things were more ingrained in the fabric of the history of the culture, but here in the West where we live, um, are we to invite concretely, are we to invite the masses into meditation, into awareness? How can we make people aware uh, yeah, of well, the thinking that you're bringing to, to us tonight? Yeah, well, the thing is, I mean, you know, it's not enough just to do meditation because, meanwhile, the world is burning. And, you know, I point out in my work that we have to sort of cross-pollinate being, you know, a spiritual person and being a political activist, that our inner process is literally getting enacted via the outer world. And that's to say that the way to work on our inner process is to fully participate in, in life, in what's happening. And... You know, one of the things I point out that the Watiko epidemic, because it's a, you know, it's a psychic epidemic, it's a collective psychosis, it's revealing to us, it's a revelation, it's revealing to us the profound importance of the human psyche in creating our experience, you know, and because like one way to think about it, if I have a dream and in the dream, I'm like helpless and I'm not in touch with my creative agency and the seemingly external powers are like, you know, having all this power over me. And if somebody came into my office and told me that dream, I would say, well, clearly you're not in touch with your creative power because you've disassociated from it. It's gotten projected out and picked up and turned against you. And what I'm saying is when you see that this is the dream and you interpret what's happening as such, where so many people feel helpless and hopeless and filled with despair, what that's reflecting is that we as a species and as individuals are not in touch with our intrinsic creative genius. And, and that's why the world, the world is reflecting it back. And so what Tico, it's quantum phenomena that it, it contains in a superposition of states, both the deepest evil and the most incredible gift and blessing. It's helping us to realize who we are. It's showing us the dreamlike nature, and it's unlocking our creative genius. But if we don't recognize what it's revealing to us, then we're fated to continue to destroy ourselves. And is this what you mean by that the coronavirus contains its own vaccine? Yeah, yeah, totally. That, you know, encoded, like, and this is in the Kabbalah, encoded, hidden within the evil is the, the real, is the true light, you know? Mm. And so what I'm pointing out, you know, because it maps on to the coronavirus pandemic, but, you know, we're talking about the mind virus, is that enco it's, it's the source of the most unbelievable evil that our species plays out you know, with each other, and yet secretly hidden, encoded within the very virus, within the evil, is its own vaccine. And, and it's not just giving us its own medicine, it's literally helping us to wake up. If Watiko, this mind virus, didn't exist, we'd have to invent it. You know, because wow. it's sparking the evolution of our species. That's what I mean. That's fascinating. So it's you know, even though some people have perhaps, or, or nature or people, have intended it for evil, yet it can be the source of good. Oh, completely, but it all depends 
on if we recognize what it's revealing to us. That determines everything, and that's what I mean, that it's a very, just like in quantum physics, they realize the, na- the nature of light. Well, sometimes it manifests as a particle, sometimes as a wave, and it depends how we observe it. And the same thing with Watiko. That's what I keep on saying, that it's a quantum phenomena. You know, people who've gotten turned on to Watiko, like, for example, in the Castaneda books, you know, they didn't have the name Watiko, but they were completely pointing at Watiko, you know, Carlos's teacher. And he was yes. saying, this is the topic of topics. There's nothing more important in the world to understand today than the Watiko mind virus. It doesn't have to, you know, you can call it whatever name you want. It doesn't have to be called Watiko. But if we don't see it, and if we don't recognize what it's showing us about ourselves, it's actually offering us exactly what we need to know to, to wake up. But if we don't recognize that, then we're fated. We're going to continue as if programmed to destroy ourselves. So just to have some, some context, um, we're going to go on a break in a second, but I want you to tell me some historical uh, references of this have Watiko in the past, so we can contrast the present time with, with similar things that have happened in the past. Let's talk about the history when we come back. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Your favorite host and mine, Richard Surrett, is under the weather tonight and he's cozy by a fireplace with a cup of tea listening to the show. Um, this is Ali Sietatan from Think Again Productions. Um, we're talking with Paul Levy um, about his very interesting idea, uh, Watiko, which is a mind virus. It's a way of understanding the pandemic, which is a little bit different from, you know, the overly scientific way that we've all been told of this physical virus that comes in the body that has to be dealt with. He is talking about a mind virus that grips us, uh, that fills us with fear and and curtails our creativity and stops us from reaching our full potential. And he says that this will disappear if we don't give it any power. That's a very important point that I'm taking away tonight. Um, Not giving it power is very important. I was asking him about... um, historical examples of Watiko, so that we can kind of have this larger context to understand it. Tell me, Paul, has there been any uh, examples of Watiko throughout human history? Yeah, well, I mean, I would say that, that, that human history itself is evidence of Watiko, because think about it, one of the ways of conceiving of Watiko, it's an autoimmune disease of the soul, where the immune system, you know, in an autoimmune disease, the immune system that's supposed to protect the body actually turns on the very body it, it's part of and it, it attacks it. And we are not separate from each other. We're interconnected and interdependent. And remember, Watiko is an inner disease of the soul 
that that explicates itself via the medium of the outside world. And think about all throughout the history of our species, we have been at war, and we are just killing each other, and we're destroying the biosphere, the life support system of the planet. That's, in other words, an expression of Watiko all throughout history, just different iterations, and um, where we're actually turning on ourselves via the form of others, which is reflecting how we're actually, you know, our creative energy, instead of being expressed constructively, is actually getting turned against us and becoming poison and killing us. So, you know, the Bible will talk about, you know, Satan or the devil or, you know, the Kabbalah, like I was saying, has its own articulation or Hawaiian Kahuna talks about these entities called these mind parasites or like Srido talks about the hostile forces or Philip K. Dick, you know, and he, I blew me away when I realized, oh my God, he's precisely describing Watiko. He calls it the black iron prison. And as he's articulating this black iron prison, it's word for word what I write about in my books, you know. So the point is, is that creative artists throughout history, spiritual traditions that are based on wisdom, philosophers, thinkers, anybody who's awakened to, you know, their nature is pointing at Watiko in their own language, in their own, with their own symbols. Um, Yes, that's true. Now, do you see... An, an external agent, like for instance, the concepts of, uh, you know, the biblical idea of Satan and angels and all of that. The idea is that um, there are, you know, evil spirits of the human psyche, and there are actors on the stage of history in the cosmic tale, other than man himself, that also play these nefarious roles. In your thinking, are there any actors? Uh, what um, Watiko into the human world, like whether it's human governments or whether it's, you know, angelic, uh, spiritual. Sure. Are there other entities yeah, yeah. that activate this in our culture, or is it yeah, just I, a matter of the mind? Right. No, I can answer that because the thing about Watiko, it's this archetypal, transpersonal, daimonic energy, and what that means is that that energy can literally take over a human being. It can possess people. And when it does that, the person so taken over is oblivious to the situation that they've been possessed by something other than themselves. And when that happens, that person who's taken over becomes a human instrument for something not human to come through, for something transpersonal that's beyond the personal, for something archetypal that's, you know, of a higher dimension to come through, and they have no idea. And, and not only one person can do that, but, but numbers of people can do that and get in phase with each other and reinforce each other's blindness and each other's madness, and that's what a collective psychosis is, and that's what we're in the middle of today. And Watiko, if you remember, I mean, I've been saying it is a collective psychosis. And so... You know, like, say, for people who say, oh, if we just get the, you know, the billionaires and the Bill Gateses and the people who are at the top of the pyramid, you know, who are doing this, you know, all the evil and centralizing power and control and taking away our freedoms, then everything would be good. It was like, no, 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 they themselves are just pawns in the hands of the archetype. We have to really connect with the deeper archetypal process, and that's happening inside of our psyche. Right, and that's where kind of the Jungian thinking comes into play. The 
the collective the archetypes of the collective unconscious mind that that you know reemerge through the fables of history from various cultures so how does how do we connect to to these positive archetypes so that are in our soul what is the path to it yeah well the path is to it's very simple it's to recognize what's happening it's to open our eyes and look because the blindness that what he is a psychic blindness it's a self-induced blindness you know, when we look away, when we could potentially see, that feeds Watiko. you know. So the real solution, you know, and it's interesting because, you know, if we see somebody under a spell and we try to preach the light to them, well, wait, who, who's the one who's asleep? It's us because, you know, their eyes are blind it, to teach the art of seeing. But, of course, how one does that, that's a whole other question. Yeah. So the four ignoble blindnesses of what he called, what are these four blindnesses? Yeah, the four ignoble blindnesses, it's a play on the Buddha's, um, you know, the, the, the noble truths, the four noble truths. So yes. I playfully created the four ignoble, you know, these, these blindnesses. And the first one is for what he called, it's that it's blind to its blindness. It doesn't know it's blind. Okay, and like I was saying before, it actually thinks it's sighted, and it thinks it's more sighted than people who actually see. So that's the right. first ignoble blindness. The second one is that when we're afflicted with Watiko, we're blind to our shadow. We don't see our own darkness, but we project it outside, and we see the evil outside of ourselves. That's the second ignoble blindness. The third is not only do we not see our, our, our darkness and our shadow, we don't see our light, you know? And so we're unconscious of our light. And so that's the third ignoble blindness. And the fourth one is not recognizing that Watiko is this revelation. It's a living revelation. It's revealing to us exactly what we need to know in order to wake up. It's revealing to us who we are. It's revealing to us the dreamlike nature. And it's revealing to us our creative nature. Because you see, when, when we, we come back, we've got to go on a break. I want you to tell okay. us how do we break free from all of this. I want to focus back on that when we get back. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back to the program. This is Ali Sietatan sitting in for Richard Serrett. Um, I'm talking uh, with Paul Levy about the mind virus, Watiko, and he was kind of telling us about the the four ignoble blindnesses. And if you want to know more about that, you got to buy his book and read it. It's a fascinating perspective, Watiko. It's his second book. Healing the Mind Virus That Plagues Our World, a sacred plant book. And, of course, uh, you can buy it on the world's biggest bookstore, Amazon. So I want to focus, as we're getting closer to the end of the program, as to what is the solution? What can we do concretely uh, to get past this? And we we touched on this, but I really want to leave people with, this positive perspective sure, uh, yeah, totally. of the solution. So tell us about that. Yeah, for sure. Well, the thing is, you know, um, when we're in touch with our true nature, with who we really are, this mind virus, the Watiko mind virus, has no power over us at all. 
And the more we have the realization of our true nature, the more we realize that our true nature is by its nature creative. So the more we realize that, the more we just are creative. And the more we are creative and express ourselves creatively, the more we know our nature. It becomes a positive feedback loop that creates light upon light. And it unlocks the creative spirit within us because we are made in the image of our creator. We are creative beings. And when any one person does that, um, you know, that will incredibly improve, you know, their life. But that's kind of insignificant. But when other people are also switched on to who they are and to the dreamlike nature and connecting with their creativity and really connecting with real compassion because compassion is the expression of this realization. And when people see this synchronistic matrix that's informing, you know, all events in the world and within their minds, then all of a sudden you realize, oh my God, I can connect with other people who are also having this, this lucid awareness in our collectively shared dream and it's exactly like in a night dream. When enough dreamers have lucidity in a night dream, they can come together and put their put their realization together and, and realize, oh my God, this collective dream we're in is manifesting in this limited, problematic way because we've been conditioned to dream it. It's just reflecting our own inner state. And in a dream, when enough dream characters in the dream realize that, and come together, they literally can change the dream they're having. And that's our situation. We are being invited to consciously step into our own evolution and to participate in our own evolutionary process and to change the waking dream. You know, that's what all of this is about. But if we don't recognize that that's what this waking dream is revealing to us, well, then we're just going to continue to destroy ourselves. Now. Yeah very interesting so this this creativity that you talked about you know um, as you're speaking i i try to imagine uh myself you know following in the footsteps of what you're inviting us to do and and the idea that we are made in the image of the creator from the torah and that we are creative beings uh, at the heart of our at the essence of who we are and you were saying before in the show that this doesn't mean that you start painting or writing poems, and not in that sense uh, alone. I mean that can be as well part of it. But mm-hmm. tell tell me more about what do you what do you mean by being creative throughout the day helps us unlock from the fear that grips us yeah, through the virus. Sure. In other words, we begin to realize like this is being a dream, you know, being an ink blot because a dream is a projection of the mind. It's an ink blot that how we interpret this waking dream instantaneously gets reflected and, you know, informs the experience we have. Like if we place a particular um, meaning on the dream, the dream will offer us evidence confirming our viewpoint. And it, it becomes a feedback loop. So just think about it. If you're in a night dream and you hold a particular point of view in a night dream, and a night dream is just a reflection of your mind, you're holding a point of view. The dream will just offer you all the evidence confirming your viewpoint because the dream is nothing than your mind, and now you have all the proof and the confirmation that your, view, that your viewpoint is true, so you become even more fixed in that viewpoint. And then, of course, then the dream will just reflect back the particular viewpoint you're holding ad infinitum, and what that is, that becomes a self-reinforcing feedback loop in which you've hypnotized yourself. 
You see, that's an example of, of using our creative genius in a way that's killing us. That's what most of us are doing. So, of course, we're dreaming up the waking dream to reflect that back. That's the Watiko psychic epidemic. But it's a revelation. That's what I'm trying to point at. I, I feel like I... You know, I feel like I should just get on rooftops and be screaming to people, like, wake up. Something is being revealed to us through what's happening in the world. It's reflecting something inside of you. I see. Yes, it's, it's interesting, this idea that by profoundly changing our mindset as a result of, of this revelation that's coming through the this pandemic uh we can revolutionize our world and and free ourselves from from this fear i mean this leads us into action uh getting touch in touch with the archetypes uh, from what i understand you know there's the hero for instance that's one of the archetypes um is the archetype of the hero play a part in, in, in this awakening yeah. Well, in other words, you know, in, in Tibetan Buddhism, one of the translations of hero is bodhisattva. And bodhisattva, it can translate as a, a real authentic hero or a being in the process of awakening. So we are being all called, you know, like a deeper calling, like a shaman, because we're all shamans in training. I mean, that's the major archetype that's activated in the collective psyche is the wounded healer shamanic archetype. And we're being called, and the question is, do we have enough courage to actually follow our calling and speak our voice and connect with our inner guide and to become ourselves, you know, to individuate, to connect with our wholeness. And as we do that, any one of us does that energetically, that makes it easier for all of us to do it. And when we connect with other people who are doing it, you know, it becomes a contagion. It, it will go in a viral way and can actually inflame a whole global awakening. And how about the use of psychedelics? Because that's becoming uh, very much part of the culture, suddenly, I've noticed. Here in Canada, there's even laws that are changing that allow uh, psychedelic therapy to, to start, and clinics are setting up. How do you feel about the use of psychedelics in this journey? Yeah, I mean, psychedelics are incredible allies in medicine, and they can be unbelievably helpful if used in a really sacred way. You know, I mean, there's a shadow side because people could use them too often or use them just to party or, you know, do one journey and they start facilitating for other people and all that. But they can be an unbelievable medicine to help people. You know, so many people who understand what I'm pointing at, you know, have been doing psychedelics because it opens them up to the very point that I'm, like, trying to illumine. Yes, absolutely. It's very interesting. Um, I, I once had an experiment when I was 18 years old. I mean, that's a long time ago. But, uh, you know, in high school uh, with, with um, psilocybin, uh, with mushrooms, and I had a vision that night, and I was in a cave, and there was a bright light, and it really kind of freaked me out. But then a voice spoke and said, you are here to do the work of God. That's what the voice said. And I just put the cover over my head and went to bed thinking, what the hell was that? I mean, it was really, it was a fascinating moment. Um, but I think it, with hindsight, it really affected my life. Um, well, Paul Levy, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight and really 
opening up this idea. Uh, I was meditating with you as you were leading us into this discussion of this mind virus, the idea that this is not just, a, and I'm so glad that somebody's really talking about this, that there's more to this than the than the actual virus that we hear about in the scientific culture where we live in, but that the psyche and the mind are in the grips of a fear. And that to, to let go of this by, first of all, not empowering it. It seems to me that's the first step is don't empower it. And then get in touch, you're saying, with your creative nature, with your deeper essence. And from there, receive revelation that's going to now get your life past this fear. And if we collectively begin to walk in such paths, then the yoke of this falls from the culture and we're freed from it and we can you know this can be a great invitation to to metamorphosis rather than than a tragedy yeah that's beautiful thank you for you know really paraphrasing it like that well guys make sure you pick up the book um you can buy it on amazon watiko by paul levy thank you so much and we look forward to having you again on the show This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.